Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for being with us on this episode of The Sword and the Trowel. We have reached the final article of the statement on social justice and the gospel. And some people may not be aware of what that statement is, but you can find it at statement of statementonsocialjustice.com, statementonsocialjustice.com. And uh, this is a declaration of 14 articles that was put together in the summer of 2018 and published online to raise awareness to this movement of social justice that has infiltrated uh, conservative, evangelical, and even reformed churches that seems to be borrowing largely from uh, philosophical and sociological ideas that come from the unbelieving world of scholarship. And uh, those of us who put this statement together, those of us who have signed it, we think that this movement is unhealthy. We think that it carries great dangers with it that will ultimately undermine the gospel. Uh, someone asked me, you know, why are you against social justice? And I'm, you know, I'm not against justice, but I'm against this social justice movement the way that it's being carried out today because I care about justice. I care about real justice, mm-hmm. biblical justice. So we've been working our way through this document. I encourage you to go read the document itself. Uh, if you want to sign it, there's a way for you to do that as well uh, at statementonsocialjustice.com. Currently 10,000, over 10,000 people signed it. So Yeah, which is pretty amazing given all of the uh, high-level opposition to it yeah. in various sectors of evangelicalism. And it certainly has, um, uh, it's, it's insightful to see how things have shaken down on who has signed it. We know that Chris Larson of Ligonier Ministries has signed it, and his board said they think it's great, and yet there's many other brothers that we love dearly that have not signed it, and I don't think anybody like needs to sign it. I don't care. Yeah, I'm right. just making the observation. It's fascinating to watch what's going on in the evangelical world, Reformed evangelical world, so we certainly want to pray for wisdom and understand really what's at the... What's at the bottom of all this? What, what principles are involved? So that's why we're trying to dig into this uh, statement. Right. And let me just say, too, it's been uh, encouraging to me to receive feedback from uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of pastors and church leaders, uh, not just here in the United States, but around the world, who have expressed appreciation for this statement. I was preaching in a church in another state a few months ago, and before I stood up to preach, a, a member of the church just came up and gave me a slip of paper. And, you know, I got the, the, the read the note five minutes before I stood up to preach. He says, thank you so much for the statement on social justice. He said, we have needed this for so long and appreciate uh, all that you guys have done on this. Uh, the pastor of that church had also spoken very appreciatively to me uh, about it. And, you know, we had not talked about it before that. He just, this is something that he was committed to and, and saw as a danger. And I think that's true for a whole lot of people, even if some evangelical leaders are warning against it. Mm-hmm. Well, last article is racism. So I'll read the affirmation and let's talk about that portion. We affirm that racism is a sin rooted in pride and malice, which must be condemned and renounced by all who would honor the image of God and all people. Such racial sin can subtly or overtly manifest itself as racial animosity or racial vainglory. Such sinful prejudice or partiality falls short of God's revealed will and violates the royal law of love. 
We affirm that virtually all cultures, including our own, at times contain laws and systems that foster racist attitudes and policies. Yeah, I, I think this statement is really good, and it is a strong renunciation of the sin of pride and partiality that manifests itself in racism. And it's uh, amazing to me that this statement seems to be overlooked by some who said why the uh, slaveholders of the 19th century in America could have signed this statement, and, and this is nothing but a racist statement. And I'm thinking, how can you say that and, and have any sense of justice in your own mind to take what words mean seriously? This is a very serious renunciation of racism. Yeah, well, I, the reason that people say that is because they're operating off of a different definition of racism. Definitions are very important in this conversation that we're having. And I think it's the second sentence there. That's what I appreciate about this affirmation is it identifies, it defines uh, racism. It says such racial sin can subtly or overtly manifest itself as racial animosity or racial vainglory. Animosity and vainglory, these are biblical terms. These are Mm -hmm. sins defined in Scripture to have animosity in your heart toward uh, another, to hate them. Well, to do that along the lines of someone's skin color or someone's ethnicity, well, this is racism and racial vainglory, vainglory or pride. To be prideful uh, in any way is a sin. sin. Pride is a sin. Yet to be prideful um, based on your skin color, well, that is uh, sinful as well. So I think there's great confusion over what racism is, and that's why um, we're having the conversation that we're having today. Yeah, and this, uh, this sin is a violation of what God's revealed to us about himself and how we are to relate to each other as image bearers. God shows no partiality. He always treats people justly. And that doesn't mean he treats everybody the same way, but he doesn't show partiality in that sense. And that was the whole point of the vision that was given to Peter in Acts chapter 10, and where he went to speak to Cornelius in Acts 11, that God is not a respecter of persons and neither should we be. We should not call anybody unclean. You know, we shouldn't have this racial superiority or vainglory that looks down upon others. Uh, This is the argument of James when he rebukes the Christians for showing partiality to those who had more money than others. And it violates this law of love that we are commanded to uh, have toward each other because God has loved us. So God is not this way. We are not to be this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I've heard somebody say when racism, when everything becomes racism, well, nothing becomes racism. If we're going, if we're going to kill this wicked sin and we want to kill it, we've got to be able to define it. We've got to know what it is. You got to be able to cite it in so that you can, um, then destroy it. And the, the sins involved animosity and vainglory, hatred and pride, I've been thinking a lot lately about how both of those sins are subtle, and even mm-hmm. pride itself. So take away racial pride. Just say pride. You know, you can have some pride within your heart that people don't even know, you know, about, or mm-hmm. you don't even know. It's a subtle kind of thing. And when it comes to relationships with other Christians, um, I certainly want to call out pride in my brother when I see it. 
but I also want to do so humbly, um, not only taking out the log of my own eye before I try to remove my brother's speck, but also knowing that you can you can misread somebody. They might not be prideful, but mm-hmm. you just think they're prideful. You know, I can come to you and say, hey, I just think you're real prideful. You know what I mean? You talked about, you know, something you did good the other day, and I think that's pride. Well, it might mm-hmm. not be pride at all. Right. You know, it could be pride that you walk around and don't talk about what God accomplished in your life. So. This should give us all a sense of, of patience, steadfastness. I'm not saying that we should be any less committed to uh, killing this sin. We should be vigilant about it, but we need to do it humbly, realizing we're talking about the sin of pride and we're talking about the sin yeah. of hatred. Right. One of the things I appreciate about this statement as well is this last sentence in the affirmation that virtually all cultures, including our own, at times contain laws and systems that foster racist attitudes and policies. Uh, Some of the pushback that we've gotten on the statement is you guys just believe that racism is an individual sin, that it's only committed by individual people. Well, obviously, it comes from the hearts of individual people. There's not something outside of humanity that constructs racism and develops it and enforces it. But because systems and organizations are run by sinful people, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, those sins can be systemic and no doubt have been and, mm-hmm. and may well be today mm-hmm. in, in various areas in our own culture. But they definitely have been in the institution that we had in our uh, nation's history of slavery and the whole Jim Crow laws and then the subtle unofficial uh, housing uh, ordinances and policies for lending and things like that. There's no doubt. This is demonstrable. It's uh, uh, easily proven. And does that exist today? Quite possibly. And I would argue that, yeah, it it Mm -hmm. does. And there have been some good uh, examples and arguments made for that. But that being the case, it doesn't mean that everything that happens is racist. You know, every time a person of um, a certain race is arrested, it doesn't mean that he's arrested because of that race. Every Every time he's denied a bank loan doesn't mean it's because of his skin color. Every time something good happens to a person doesn't mean because it's because of his skin color. And that thinking seems to be gaining more and more prominence in folks' minds today as we discuss this issue. And that's unhelpful. As you said, if everything's racism, then nothing's racism. Even in the realm of the home, as a husband and father, if I'm sinned in certain ways, it creates a a process, a custom, it creates a tradition, Mm -hmm. and it creates a system in that sense where this sin is is working its way through our family. Yeah. And I think it's great that we're on the lookout for that. Yeah. But there's also systems that are good, and, you know, sometimes there's a culture, a tradition in my home— that is actually really serving a good purpose and should not be changed, and it's not full of sin. It's not a, a, a systemic sin in that sense. Right. So let's all keep our eyes open to systems that are legitimately uh, grounded in sin, permeated with uh, sin. If what if it's racism, we'll drive it out. But we need caution, wisdom, humility. We need to ask God for help as we're trying to identify. Uh, what those really are, and ensuring we know what kind of policy it is that we're talking about before we seek to uh, take it down. Absolutely. I appreciate what you've said about that a great deal. Uh, Let's look at this denial. And then after that, I want to ask you about your own upbringing. And did you have uh, racist elements in your upbringing that maybe you see better 
from where you stand today than you did when you were actually growing up, uh, perhaps in the midst of it. So think about that for a minute. Here's the denial. We deny that treating people with sinful partiality or prejudice is consistent with biblical Christianity. We deny that only those in positions of power are capable of racism, or that individuals of any particular ethnic groups are incapable of racism. We deny that systemic racism is in any way compatible with the core principles of historic evangelical convictions. We deny that the Bible can be legitimately used to foster or justify partiality, prejudice, or contempt toward other ethnicities. We deny that the contemporary evangelical movement has any deliberate agenda to elevate one ethnic group and subjugate another. And we emphatically deny that lectures on social issues or activism aimed at reshaping the wider culture are as vital to the life and health of the church as the preaching of the gospel and the exposition of scripture. Historically, such things tend to become distractions that inevitably lead to departures from the gospel. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in that denial. Mm-hmm. So, racism is not biblical. Does that mean Christians can't be racists? Well, sure, surely they can. Just like they can sin. They can be prideful and yeah. angry and and then be foolishly prideful and angry and somehow base that on their skin color or yeah. another person's skin color. So to look at a person who uh, has been racist, was racist, and say he couldn't have been a Christian because look at his racism would be inconsistent with our understanding of how the gospel works in a person's life. Mm-hmm. People can have blind spots. That's right. Serious blind spots. And some did, no doubt, in this issue and, and on others. Uh, this also says that any race, any ethnic person, can be guilty of racism, the sins of partiality and pride. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a majority uh, culture issue. And at least some people out there are claiming that it's... Um it's a sin that people of color, or I think people of color, maybe African-American, cannot be guilty of. And I still don't know if I have my mind fully around the argumentation that it's, it's uh, racism is something that only um, a certain people can be guilty of. I think it's, I think it's gonna, based on the idea of the origin of the word race and racism and how it came about. But it seems to me that whoever's making that kind of argument is grounding uh, racism in something other than biblical definition, other something other than sin, biblically defined. If it's defined as uh, racial animosity, racial vainglory, well, surely any human being can be guilty of that. <laughs> right. It, but it, and this is where the dangers of importing philosophical, sociological categories in our thinking when we're talking about biblical issues uh, is really manifested because there are those who make the case that race, because race is a social construct, and uh, the B.D. Anyabwele put me onto this and helped me a great deal, recommended a book called Racecraft by Fields and Fields, Two Sisters, and uh, there's some really helpful things in that book, but talk about how race was constructed to justify racism, and so there were already these attitudes of superiority, those in majority cultures uh, who had opportunity to keep uh, folks that didn't look like them below them that invented the category of race, basically. That's an oversimplification, but uh, used the idea of race to maintain their superiority and keep those not like them inferior. And that this then 
easily becomes a systemic problem. And so there are those who have taken that and bought into that way of thinking, which may have some credibility to it. I'm not dismissing that way of thinking, but they've extrapolated from that and said, well, okay, if you are a part of then the repressed race, it is impossible for you to be guilty of racism because racism is a sin that only those who are in the position of thinking themselves superior can commit and the superior or the majority race. So that's a that's an argument that I don't think is sustainable biblically, as you just mm-hmm. said, and it's one that I think we need to deconstruct in the midst of this ongoing conversation. I am glad that there are uh, brothers who are of minority race and ethnicity who reject the idea that minorities cannot be racist. I'm happy uh, they would agree with this aspect of our statement. So it says that uh, systemic racism is incompatible with core principles of historic evangelical conviction. So when systemic racism existed in the United States and Christians went along with it, even promoted it, they were going against biblical Christianity at Mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. They were sinning and wickedly sinning at that point, and it was wrong for them to use the Bible. We say that the Bible cannot be used legitimately to justify racism. That doesn't mean that people haven't used the Bible, but they've misused and abused the Bible when they have uh, done so. I think this is another important point that some who uh, disagree with us in this big debate would uh, take a stand against, but I'm willing to argue for it. We deny that the contemporary evangelical movement has any deliberate agenda to elevate one ethnic group and subjugate another. And this has been said by those who uh, are claiming to leave white evangelicalism and uh, doing away with the idea that uh, evangelicalism uh, is not concerned with race. They said, well, no, obviously it is concerned with race. Mm. And this is what's made people say, you know, evangelicalism has never had the gospel because it has been a, quote, white man's religion, which is, you know, I think ludicrous. What did you want to ask me about my growing up? Yeah, so uh, did you grow up? As a racist, or did you have uh, uh, racist influences? Yeah, it's funny. That's a dangerous thing to deny. You know, now these days, no, I'm, I'm not a racist. I was going to get Everybody's you. Like, oh man, you know you're racist. <laughs> yeah, if you deny it, did that I, proves you are. I certainly grew up with plenty of animosity and plenty of um, vainglory in my life. I don't know that it uh, really ran along the lines of race or ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And some of this is probably. Just where I grew up, um, I grew up in a town that was smaller in Central Florida, and my high school had different ethnicities. We were probably one third white, one third black, one third Hispanic. Uh, one of some of my best friends were black guys that I played football with and went toe to toe with every day. And uh, my favorite coach in football was a black man named Coach Council, who's a Christian. And, who I certainly felt like I identified much more than uh, white coaches I had that weren't Christians. So did I grow up in a, you know, certainly my town, I, I could see still the influence of segregation. I understand there are different parts of town and there were, you know, mm-hmm. the church I went to, majority white and all that. So I saw all of those dimensions that we still talk about and deal with today. Um, but, man, I love, I have tons of good memories from, friends and that's still like the way I look back on my upbringing. Yeah. 
Which, that's wonderful that you had that. I know that's a generational thing, too. Probably mm-hmm. a generation or two behind you or, or further back would have had those same ways of thinking. And that's certainly true in my own experience. Uh, I was in the fourth grade when forced integration became a part of our school system. And there was a black school and a white school, and they remained black and white. But then the school that I went to was the one that became... Uh, racially integrated and it was forced and I, it was a bad time uh, the black kids were being bussed in didn't want to be there uh, the white kids didn't want them there so there was all kind of animosity and um, it was a it was a difficult season in fact there were race riots in the high school that I attended every year until my senior year I mean every year these counted out in the spring police would come and you just knew and they'd find guns they'd find razors they'd find all kind of stuff in lockers uh, during that time and by God's grace the senior year uh, when I was in school, we didn't have that. That didn't mean we were free from racial tensions, but at least we weren't you know, killing each other or trying to kill each other for that. And I, it was a, an interesting thing. I remember having a Bible study when I was 15 years old, 16 years old, I guess. And the question came up, is it possible to be a Christian and to hate? And I took the position of, oh, no, you can't do that. You know, I mean, if you're a Christian, you can't have hatred. If you hate people, that proves you're not a Christian. And I was pretty adamant about it. And shortly after that, uh, I got jumped by some blacks that I had played football with, some friends. They were mad at a buddy of mine's brother, and I was with this buddy, and so they started beating up on him and started beating up on me. And it was a mess, and I wound up in the hospital. And in the, uh, in the emergency room of the hospital, I was so angry and just mm-hmm. shouting out things that are just wicked. And God used that experience over the next weeks and months to bring face-to-face to me, yeah, you know, I, I was full of hate and yet a Christian, you know, believed I was a Christian. I think I was at that time. And that began a, an odyssey for me of just thinking through my own experience, my heart of animosity, prejudices that were very much rooted in racial differences and uh, recognizing that this is just the the way of the world that I grew up in. Talked to my dad a lot about it. My dad was uh given over to racism and you know he said man that's the way I was raised even though he was half Syrian you know he looked down on black people but we had good uh, folks in our church that helped us to think through that in right ways and overcome it to a large degree but to be aware it was in my heart I was completely oblivious to it Mm -hmm. until put in a position where it was called out Mm -hmm. so these things are important we're not saying that uh, just because you think you're above it means that you're free from it I think the seeds of all sin live within the hearts of the best Christian. Mm-hmm. Those two stories, really, as far as the society's concerned, the cultural things we're facing, that's an, those are enlightening stories. I mean, you're in your 60s, I'm in my 30s, mm-hmm. and uh, there's pride and animosity exists. They go all around. They, they're unchanging. But as a society, we're dealing with, with this conversation at a very different time yeah. now than we were in the 60s, it doesn't mean that, oh, boy, everything's fixed. I don't right. claim that at all. Right. Like I mentioned, I saw the residue of segregation everywhere. But my goodness, I mean, I couldn't even, if you'd have told me in middle school, high school, I didn't, you know, <laughs> trying to envision black people and white people going to different schools. I mean, that's just been just <laughs> crazy. You know, that, that's not that's not the way, that's not the world I was, I was living in. So that might at least give us some signals for how we, move forward, you know, some guardrails as we try to see things improve more and more. I agree.
two of our podcast. We talk about a book today. We want to talk about a book by the great Charles Spurgeon, Lectures to My Students. I believe you put me on to this book, Tom, back in the day. And he goes through a number of principles for those who are going to be laboring in pastoral ministry. So what's good about this book? Oh, everything's good about this book. Uh, this is uh, Spurgeon at his best in many ways because he's lecturing to the students of his pastor's college and doing this uh, with a view to their usefulness and effectiveness. And so he's funny, witty, insightful, biblical. Uh, he is able to issue warnings and criticisms in way that make them more receptive because he laces them with honey. And so I would just commend this book. I don't think there's anything like it that would be in the same category. So I would highly recommend the book. There's different versions of it. The first version I read, I didn't know for several years, was an edited version or an abridged version. And the unabridged version is one that I would commend to you. And it, it includes uh, several extra things you don't get on uh, in the first one, I think he's got his commenting and commentaries mm-hmm. in part three of this, which was a separate book when I first was introduced to this literature. And even that is hilarious because he goes through just, he'll give you one or two lines, sometime a paragraph on different commentaries. And um, he'll say things like, you know, the paper that was used to publish this book would have been better used to line the, the baker's pot or something. <laughs> it's just, it's hilarious. So the book is worth reading to get a good understanding of uh, practicalities and uh, theological foundations for ministry, caring for mm-hmm. your flock, dealing with your own heart. In fact, the, the first chapter is on the minister's fainting fits or self-watch. He talks about the, the fainting fits of the minister in there. And people ask me, I had this asked to me, I was in Columbia last week and going back to the airport, a young man who aspires to the ministry he said, what's been the most difficult part of your ministry? I get that question all the time, and I don't even have to think about the answer. The most difficult part of being a pastor is dealing with my own heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been number one from day one and will be till the day I die. And Spurgeon understands that, and, and he writes well about that. So I commend the book, man. What have you found useful? He's got great stuff on prayer and preaching. I remember reading about prayer. He, he really can help you tighten up that prayer game. He starts to say, don't use the Lord's name in vain when you're praying. Stop adding his name in so many times, <laughs> using it as a stopgap when you don't know what to say next. And he, he said, But he talks about getting down in the furrow of real prayer. He says, you're a pastor. Go before the Lord for the flock and avoid these, you know, just fruity sayings and abstract kind of praying. But get down there and pray for your people to ask God mm. to give them what they need. On the uh, preaching portion, he's got a chapter called Attention, where he says, you know, if you're going to preach, ensure that you get people's attention. If you're not interested in what you're saying, why in the world should they be interested (laughs) in what you're saying? But he has this great section on uh, using a pause, and he says a pause can be uh, used helpfully when people are uh, getting a bit distracted, maybe even falling asleep. Uh, he says, a minister who saw that the people would would sleep sat down and observed... I saw you were all resting, and I thought I would rest too. <laughs> so that would be one way to uh, try to arrest the attention of your audience. But just good stuff like that. If you want some helpful truth about what it means to be a faithful pastor, grab this book. I agree. Let me commend one more section of it, The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear, how pastors need to be willing to overlook things and to put no stock in things that they hear 
people say or hear that people have said and things that they observe to show grace. And uh, there's a time we need to turn a blind eye to things and we need to turn a deaf ear to things. That will give you opportunity to have longevity in ministry. In part three, we've been working through the word and considering different commands that are given. And we're not only looking for commands that God gives directly to all of his people, but we're even reading through the Old Testament, considering narratives where we see commands given to particular persons in a narrative. We're going to address things like that, where we see uh, certain punishments for the transgression of God's commands. We're going to draw that out, and we want to do that today. We are considering God's commandments as they appear even before they're given in Exodus 20. So Ernie Reesinger in his book Law Gospel does a great job of showing how we see God's Ten Commandments uh, in play before the giving of the law at Sinai. This indicates that the law that is given is a summary of God's eternal moral law. Well, you mean to tell me that before Moses heard God say and wrote down, you shall have no other gods before me, that it was sin to have no other gods before God? That is precisely the point that I'm driving at. Prove it. Prove it. All right. So we look in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12. These are the words. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So there were gods in Egypt. And God's going to judge them? And God's going to judge them. And judge the people who worship them? And he's going to judge the people that worship them. And he's doing it before he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses at Sinai. How about that? Isn't that unfair? You, no. You, you throw the penalty flag before you give the, the rule? <laughs> These things are plain, because what can be known about God is made plain to them in the things that have been made. Does this have anything to do with the law written on the heart? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really the key, isn't it? That uh, These Ten Commandments were not invented by God at Sinai, and they're certainly not invented by Moses at Sinai. They're revealed by God to Moses and the people at Sinai because these things are always true, always right, always good. So the moral law, the Ten Commandments, it's like a transcript of God's own character. And God had revealed this from the very beginning. And certainly when he created Adam and Eve in his own image, he wrote this law upon their hearts. This is so helpful when we think about the world that we live in. God's commands are not just for his people. It's so easy to reduce it down to that. And yet it's quite clear from Exodus chapter 12 that the Egyptians should have been worshiping the one true God and not worshiping their false gods. Mm. So we should have confidence to go out into this world and to proclaim God's gospel and to proclaim his law. Does this have anything to uh, say to us about the person that's in some deep dark corner of a jungle somewhere who's never heard of Jesus? And how can that person be held accountable? We know the law is written on that person's heart and that through general revelation, God's creation, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so if he were to be a God-fearer, 
then that's what he ought to be. He ought to fear God. He ought to understand. There's certain things. He doesn't understand everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he does not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, through general revelation, we cannot discover that the second member of the Trinity was born of the Virgin and lived, died, and rose again that sinners might be reconciled. But uh, that person is held accountable to God uh, because God is his creator, and God has created him in such a way that he has the capacity to um, understand what God requires of him. Mm, yeah. Capacity and obligation. And failure to fulfill that obligation results in sin and justified condemnation. Very good. Well, we're going to continue to work through uh, these different commandments as they appear before Sinai. But there's number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus before twelve twelve. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org. Thank you.